I must nevertheless confess that it gives me pain to see the hasty and indigested production of a private letter handed to the public to be animadverted upon by the adversaries of the new government. Could I have supposed that the contents of a private letter marked with evident haste would have composed a newspaper paragraph? I certainly should have taken some pains to dress the sentiment in less exceptionable language. The words of General George Washington. And this is the Guardians of the Republic. Hello, I'm Patrick Murray from the Monmouth University Poll, and my co-host is Ian Kahn from the TV series Turn, Washington Spies. On this episode of the podcast, we'll discuss James Comey and the news surrounding him. We'll also discuss loyalty in our hot take segment, and we'll wrap up with our Guardian of the Week. But first, Patrick, what's new in the world of polling? Well, it was a pretty slow week in polling, and that's typical for a holiday weekend. Uh, But I want to mention the most recent Economist YouGov tracking poll. Now, we talked about my Monmouth outlier poll last week, and I should point out that this poll here is also an outlier in that they have a much tighter race for the Democratic nomination. Right now, they have Biden at uh, 26% and Warren at 21%, so so very close together with uh, Bernie Sanders in third place at 14%. So this is much tighter uh, than other polls have had it. And they've been tracking a little tighter than these other polls uh, have in the past. Yeah, that's kind of exactly in the direction, let's say, of where your poll was last week, certainly with Warren moving up. I just think it's an indication that the 30% support we're seeing in most of these polls for Joe Biden is built on this idea of he's had got the highest name recognition, these voters aren't paying attention, it's all about electability, and it's not as strong as when we look at the, the polls in the early states. And I think YouGov is capturing it. I think that's something about what our outlier poll was capturing too, is that why is Joe Biden the number that's moving around so much? And I think that's why. Well, you know, I, I have to say, like, we didn't, t- and I didn't say this last week, because really last week was about sort of taking responsibility and calling it an outlier poll. But one thing that it really made me think of was that there's a sense in my mind that this is where we're going. It may not be where we're at, but I think it's an indication of where things are going. Because if you look at the energy behind the Warren campaign right now, it's it's no surprise to me that she, that she would be in the same sort of area code as Biden. I think the thing that surprised me about your poll last week was that Sanders was even in that in that same level of conversation. That is what surprised me. Not that Warren and Biden were tripping up against each other. Yeah. So we'll, we'll see what happens as, as we move forward. You got to remember that Bernie Sanders support is very, very vociferous support. Uh, it's out there. And, and in a contest like Iowa, which is a caucus where it's all about energy and getting people out, uh, Bernie Sanders should do well. The question is how well. But I think as we're getting into this process in the fall, we're going to see a lot more churning in these numbers than we have to date. And so maybe, so, you know, that was just something capturing the potential for that churning. I'm telling you, there's going to be a moment in some point in the next couple of months where we're going to look back and say that that poll was, was very telling about about where (laughs) things have gone. I mean, that certainly was my instinct the moment I heard about it. Yeah. So we'll see. But anyway, the reason why I mentioned this YouGov poll uh, with the economist is that they do a lot of tracking on questions other than uh, the presidential election. And they've been doing some questions on immigration. And in general, opinion on immigration is mixed. The majority of the public say it is good for the country, but they see it as a crisis right now. They think refugees should be able to come into the country, but not receive certain services like access to Medicare.
there. But that those questions are not what caught my eye this week. It, what caught my eye is they added something new. So this is an online poll. So the people who do it can read something on the screen. And so this is what they got on the screen. It was basically Emma Lazarus's lines uh, that are engraved on the Statue of Liberty. So the respondents saw, give me your tired, your poor, your huddled masses yearning to breathe free, the wretched refuse of your teeming shore. Send these, the homeless, tempest tossed to me. I lift my lamp beside the golden door. And then they asked, did this sentiment apply in the past? And 69% of the public say, yes, it did. And that ranges from 74% to 76%, depending whether you're an independent Republican or Democrat. So basically not much difference there. And then they ask the question, does this apply now? 41% agree that this sentiment of Emma Lazarus's applies now. And that includes 48% of Democrats and 42% of Republicans, a little less in terms of independence at 36%, with many of that group saying that they don't know. All right, so a little difference there, but still not, you know, Republicans and Democrats are, are pretty much on the same page. Yeah, this is where we're at, right. whether, whether we're actually being that place, whether right. America is that spot. Now, here's the question. Should this sentiment apply in the future? Ah, should it apply? So we have 54% overall say yes, but that's 72% of Democrats and less than half of independents and Republicans. It's 47% for independents, 43% for Republicans. I'm shocked, actually. I'm shocked Why? that there are 43% of Republicans who believe that it should apply in the future. I would think that that number would be down in the teens. Yeah. Not, well, not so close to... Obviously, there's a big gulf between you know 72% and 43%. That's a very large gulf. I, right. I'm just surprised that it's even that high. Yeah. I, well, remember, uh, Republicans in the old days, uh, back in uh, the Bushes... Uh, in the Reagan. Greens, Bushes, Reagan, you know... Re- Immigration was a good thing for the country. Uh, This is just a recent switch for Republicans. But it's the idea of the sentiment itself, I think, which is what kind of immigrants are we going to let in? And uh, basically, we have a majority of Republicans saying, uh, and a majority of of independents saying, uh, we've got enough homeless, tempest-tossed refuse already. We don't need any more. Time to close the door on that. Uh, take that sign, you know, take that uh, plaque down from the Statue of Liberty. Yeah. I mean, if you, I, I happen to have caught a, a moment of Trump's uh, original uh, campaign launch coming down the escalator. And one of the, the first thing he said was, I'm going to build a wall and stop these people from coming in. Like that was a, the essence of what he was doing. Right. And at the time, it, he didn't, it didn't seem like he had something, but he had something. And he grabbed the Republican Party. It's, it can be argued with that message. Right. And he grabbed a lot of independents with that message, too, who, who just felt like somebody is to blame for why I don't feel like I'm getting ahead. And he gave them somebody to blame, which is these huddled masses yeah. who are pouring over our border. And so we see that. It's like, oh, it was okay that we let them in the past, but not anymore. Um, so big drop uh, for Republicans on, on that sentiment. But on a different topic, I also dug up public opinion ratings on James Comey since he's been in the news in the past week. And it's kind of interesting to see how the shift in partisan opinion has been on him. Uh, back in May of 2017, a Quinnipiac poll put him at 32% favorable and 33% unfavorable. So basically evenly split, 
with the remaining third having no opinion or saying they don't know, know enough about James Comey at the time. So this is a few months. This is right after he got fired. Mm-hmm. So Democrats, positive, 47% favorable, 17% unfavorable. Independents were split evenly at 32% to 33%. And Republicans were decidedly negative. Only 14% were favorable towards Comey at the time. 51% were unfavorable. Then by 2018, uh, a year later, they had him at a negative 30 to 41, with a big drop coming among independents and an even bigger drop coming among Republicans. So 67% of Republicans had a negative view, 40% of independents had a negative view. Uh, so that's a, that's a growth uh, in there. Democrats did not change their opinion. But when I went back further, so this is before Comey was fired. So this is January 2017. Quinnipiac had asked a different question, which is, how do you approve of how Comey is handling his job as FBI director? Now, remember, by May of 17, when he's fired by Donald Trump, Democrats are positive, Republicans are negative. But in January of 2017, when Trump was taking the oath of office, Democrats were negative. Yeah. Right. 65 percent say they disapproved of the way he handled his job. Only 11 percent approved, where Republicans were split evenly. Thirty five percent approved, 36 percent disapproved. So from January of 2017 to May of 2017, there was a huge partisan shift. Of course, you know, January 2017, Democrats are blaming Jim Comey for uh, Hillary Clinton's loss in that election. By May of 2017, Republicans are blaming Jim Comey for digging up the Russia investigation. All makes perfect sense. Yeah. So that brings us to what happened this week, right? Which is that uh, IG report on Comey's behavior uh, during and after he was uh, the FBI director and that he violated his non-disclosure agreement with sharing some of those memos that he kept of the Trump meetings. Um, And I thought it was worth talking about him today because he really is an object lesson for you and me and anybody else who has the who shares our mission here at Guardians of the Republic which is doing what we think is right and make sure that we preserve these processes of the constitution the norms of behavior the things that make our country actually work uh James Comey was doing that or at least felt he was doing that but it's not clear uh that that he was or that so that was the outcome what we're going to do now is go down a timeline uh, from October of 2015 um, all the way through to May of 2017. And we're going to look at some of the things that James Comey did uh, in as the head of the FBI and some of the choices that he made and how it sort of was positive or negative for this idea of guarding our republic. So starting on October 1st of 2015, James Comey tells reporters that FBI investigators looking into possible compromise of information on Clinton's private email server would be fiercely independent. If you know my folks, he said, you know they don't give a rip about politics. Part of doing our work well is to make sure that we don't talk about it. All right, so that's step one. Moving on to June, because this is where I want to get. Yeah. June 27, 2016. So that's a, a, a almost a year later, nine months later. Former President Bill Clinton drops into the aircraft of U.S. Attorney General Loretta Lynch for an unscheduled meeting at an airport in Phoenix. To me, this is the original sin of this whole experience. All right. So so we at this point we know there's an FBI investigation. The Clinton yes. campaign, Hillary Clinton campaign is calling this a security check or a security inquiry. Um, and you know Comey says, well we use the word investigation here that's in our name at about this time. So at this point 
uh, Clinton has basically locked up the nomination. She has all the delegates that she needs. She's going into the convention. She's worried about a little bit of a an uprising from the Sanders folks, but they simply don't have the votes to do this. And then that thing happens with Bill Clinton. Mm. So, I mean, there's stupidity all around there. There's stupidity of Lynch. There's for, arrogance, stupidity. Uh, allowing there's... Clinton for getting on the plane at this particularly yes. sensitive time. And in a public, and in a public way. Yes. Uh, on a tarmac where the attorney general, I mean, if, if we, let's flip this around for a moment. And let's imagine that it was uh, William Barr is the attorney general. And uh, President Trump, I don't think Melania is getting on any plane. But if we see... Uh, someone from the Republican side going on to discuss with William Barr whether there's going to be a furthering of the investigation or whether it should be stopped, the liberal Democrats and the Democrats, all everyone would be screaming bloody murder that this is, uh, you know, this is the definition of the swamp. It was, it was the worst possible choice, I think, that he could have made in every possible way and then tied Loretta Lynch's hands in yeah. the process. So at that point, Lynch had really... <laughs> She was backed into a corner there. She had said after that that she was going to, uh, she would accept whatever recommendation the per career prosecutors and uh, investigators handed to her. So if they right. said, so that was July first of twenty sixteen. Right. So if they said prosecute, then she was. So she had to come out and say that. But that, that the, she does the that. day after that, Loretta Lynch makes that announcement. Right. Uh, then Canada Trump tweets that it is impossible for the FBI not to recommend criminal charges against Hillary Clinton, setting up a major conflict when Comey goes public with his investigation announcement just a few days later. So those few days later, on July fifth of twenty sixteen, James Comey announces that the FBI is recommending the Justice Department not bring charges against Clinton from her for her handling of classified data. Still, Comey says Clinton and her staff were extremely careless in using a private email server and adds that he thinks it's possible that classified information on the server could have been hacked by a hostile actor. And this is where you, your hair went on fire. Yes, because I get the whole setup there with what Clinton did. It's obvious at this point that the FBI doesn't feel that it has enough information to recommend a prosecution. That there's not going to be a prosecution. And that announcement usually comes from the attorney general's office or the U.S. attorney's office if it's a U.S. attorney um, case. It does not come from the investigators. So this is where Comey, I think, opened the Pandora bo Pandora's box by jumping ahead of the investigators, uh, jumping ahead of the prosecutors and saying, here's what we sent to Loretta Lynch rather than waiting for Loretta Lynch to make her announcement. Which this she is, does right, the following day on which July 6, 2016. Which she has to do the following day. That is highly unusual. And that's what was part of the IG's re, uh, report on Comey. And uh, while, you know, they didn't prosecute him for anything, but they basically said this is just really highly unusual. So my question is, why did Jim Comey do this? Why did he break protocol? And to give some context to the opening quote, the opening quote was chosen every week. It's hopefully chosen with in with something like this in mind, where here you have General George Washington speaking about a, a material or information that was not necessarily supposed to go into the public domain, which is now brought into the public domain. And your major argument with Comey is that this is just not the FBI's place to do it. But although he felt that there would be that the FBI would be uh, would lose credibility 
right. because there's so much publicity about this. And we have the Clinton and Loretta Lynch, you know, airplane experience so that he felt that it was important because he believed that president that the future president was going to be Hillary Clinton to, to make sure that the FBI was held in good stead. Right. So he said politics do, didn't play a part. But now he says politics did play a part. He thought Hillary Clinton was going to win. There go. He had to break protocol and do this in order to protect the reputation of the FBI. And what happened is he sullied the reputation of the FBI by doing that. That's, this is, and this is where I said this is an object lesson for people like you and me. He said he was doing this for the right reasons, you know, because it's very important for the processes of democracy that we trust investigators who are investigating a crime, particularly crimes that uh, swirl around those at the highest levels of power. But I, the problem that I have with that is that in many ways he put himself above that, that in some ways he was the only one who was capable of protecting the reputation of the FBI, that he couldn't trust anybody else to do it or he couldn't trust the processes itself to do it. So he let's play devil's advocate for a second, sure. Patrick. Let's say he did not come out and say this. And President, candidate Trump at the time could, would, we one would guess, would have just said, look, the FBI is is in the, he's in Clinton's camp. I mean, the FBI works for President Obama. Obama wants Clinton to be the president and they're covering up something. So, you know, in a way, wasn't Comey in an impossible position? He wasn't because of Bill Clinton, right? Uh, I uh, he was an impossible position, but he jumped the queue. He didn't wait to find out what the attorney general was going to do in terms of making an announcement. Uh, he felt that he needed to get out in front of it, which maybe suggests that he did not trust Attorney General Lynch. I don't know, uh, but he didn't wait for these things to happen. Yes, yeah, I, I agree with you that that's what he felt. Mm-hmm. But by putting his own interpretation of what he needed to do in ter- to help defend the FBI ahead of the processes that are in place that in and of themselves defend the FBI, he undermined the FBI. I, I, I hear that. But again, it feels in a way, because I go back to the original sin of Bill Clinton getting on that plane, it sort of put the FBI into a situation. But what, what ends up happening next is, is particularly potent. Uh, right. On August 22nd of 2016, uh, candidate Trump argues that a special prosecutor is needed for the Justice Department to investigate Hillary Clinton's crimes. Okay, moving on to the big moment. And you argue because he made the first choice, he was stuck to make the second choice which is October 28th of 2016 in a letter to the leaders of congressional oversight committees, Comey notifies Congress that the FBI is reopening the investigation into the handling of classified information in connection with Democratic president, presidential candidate Clinton. This had to do with Anthony Weiner. Right. So there's that, that other investigation going on by the U.S. attorney. Uh, they got Anthony Weiner's laptop. They got some of these emails uh, that were between uh, Hillary Clinton and Huma Abedin, Weiner's wife and Clinton's uh, key advisor. So wow. the U.S. attorney sends them to the FBI to say, you know, here we have this stuff. Uh, and because Comey did what he did on July 5th and the subsequent letter that he sent to Congress to basically say that this was, the, it was closed, that he now 
was forced into making this announcement just days before the 2016 <laughs> That's election. That's the insanity of it. I mean, what would have happened if he did not do that? Would, would we be looking at, a, as a, at Clinton and going towards re-election? Uh, towards election? Yes, I think so. Uh, I mean, I, the, that was the special sauce that put President Trump over the top? There are many reasons why Clinton lost this election, uh, and you can point to any one of them. But I think that in the end, that doubt that it raised again about Hillary Clinton was enough to swing yeah. 78,000 votes in three states. I, I always try to take it from my perspective of how much does this change my opinion about a candidate? Let's say I'm supporting Hillary Clinton. And then I say, oh, man, what are you doing? So then you have somebody who's more on the fence about Clinton or Trump. And it's just like, well, you know what? We know she's completely corrupt. Maybe he's going to be, I mean, we have the FBI yeah. director coming out and reopening an investigation into her 10 days before. And you have to wonder whether James Comey was aware and whether, you know, it, it really is, it's a, it's terrible. Um, and then he comes out on November 6th, the day before the election and says that the new trove of emails doesn't change the FBI's recommendation that the Justice Department not charge Clinton for her handling of classified information. That's some balls. And it's right too there. late. It's too late. It's yeah. two days before the election. It's and it actually makes it, it, it actually makes, makes it worse because yes. it brings it back up again and makes it look like, you know, the one thing that the FBI didn't want, it didn't want to look like it was in the, right. you know, in the bag for Clinton. And now it brings it back again to then make it sound again, like actually, well, we are in the bag for Clinton. So it's, it's really, you know, you go down this timeline, it is maddening to see what he did. Right. And then Trump comes to office and then Comey, I guess, uh, you know, in order to protect himself or whatever, because now he's considered the reason why Hillary Clinton loses the election confirms that they're investigating the Trump campaign and uh, the Russia connections. And that was March 20th of 2017, followed up on May 9th of 2017, where Trump suddenly fires Comey on a Tuesday afternoon. I think it, I think everyone saw that coming for a yeah. while. Yeah, that, that yeah, there was uh, it definitely was coming. Oh, by the way, I want to mention, uh, you know, thanks to WBUR dot org uh the radio the npr station in boston for uh, this is where we got our timeline from so if you want to find the timeline go to their their website and uh they got they have even more than we than we were been talking about here in the final analysis as you look back at all of this what does it make you think it makes me think be very careful when you're out there and you have to feel that you have to get out and do something different in order to protect the processes of our republic. And that's what James Comey felt he was doing. And in the end, he did not. You can't go out there and break the protocol and then tell the public to have trust in it. I remember when Robert Mueller was, uh, was testifying in front of uh, the House a few months back. And I read somewhere, and I thought it was very apt, uh, that if Robert Mueller was the head of the FBI during the time during this period of time, Hillary Clinton would be the president of the United States. And if James Comey was running the special counsel, that President Trump would be impeached. That that the 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 discipline of Mueller would have stopped it never mm -hmm. would have happened. I mean, he would never would have come out and made that announcement. And Comey, if he was a special counsel, would have been leaking and dropping and making sure of things everywhere. So it really does, uh, timing is a lot. Timing is everything. Yeah. There is an almost messianic quality to what Comey did in July 2016. 
mm-hmm. that I'm the only one who can protect the FBI from the from the, the scandal that's swirling around us. And of course, he didn't do that. He did, and and that that and then the dominoes started falling, and it forced his hand on so many different things to do things in ways that you would not normally do. Normally, if he hadn't made that announcement and he came across, you know, the Wiener laptop was shared with him and he hadn't said this case was closed, it would have just continued <laughs> to be Let's an just internal talk about investigation. The fact that Anthony Wiener, that Anthony oh, Wiener is the, was the guy. And it was because he was being, I mean, it's just, it's, uh, it's it's almost like it's being written in a book somewhere. I mean, you know the the joke about yeah this is the yeah this is the, yeah this is a this is a plot line in a yeah in a movie that you would not believe. Line, no, you'd go like yeah. this. You go really really. So you know, a month before the FBI director is going to step out and and speak in in a way that he shouldn't. That's going to swing the election. Oh wait, the FBI director is going to come back because the guy who is famous and he's married to Clinton's what? What is going on here? It does give you some idea that we, I'm not going to say that we're living in a simulation, but if we were, there's some kid uh, at a computer who's putting a lot of funny things into the timeline. Let's put it that way. All right. So fellow guardians of the Republic, take James Comey as a, as a warning. You don't know what's going to happen Mm -hmm. uh, when you make that first step. Okay. So now let's move on to our hot take segment. And this is where we're going to have 90 seconds to discuss a topic in the news. And when you hear this sound, it'll be time for us to move on to our next topic. Our first topic is Joe Walsh and his Fox Business News interview. I do believe we've never had a situation like this where we have a president who we fundamentally can't believe. I do believe he lies virtually every time he opens his mouth. Give me an example. I believe Stuart... Stewart, he said there were high-level phone calls with Chinese officials. His staff admitted that was not true, that he lied in order to manipulate the market. Okay, give me another Period. one. Give me another one. That, it, that doesn't he work. He said that his... He's, <laughs> hey, Stewart, really, you don't believe that that's a lie? No, I don't. You don't? And I really object to you saying to me, and you know it is, Stuart. I do not know it Stuart, is. And please don't do you bring me believe- to nonsense. Stuart, do you believe this president lies? No. You don't believe he's ever lied? He exaggerates and spins. Okay, do you believe he's ever told the American people a lie? No. Okay. Okay. <laughs> okay. I really take offense to you. Say yeah, that was, a, and oh. I take yeah, that's, oh, that was, that's one of my favorite lines in the oh, whole interview. Cut the crap, and I, I take offense to you putting me in with your nonsense. They're like, shut up, Stuart Varney. And then the, the, one of Walsh's best moments of the campaign so far is that, okay, I do. I mean, that's what follows is he says, well, I do believe that. And he's sort of, you know, bouncing, you know, face first into the cult of Trump. Yes. And one of I mean, the leaders yeah, of that the, cult. The, yeah, it says, MK says, either you're a complete fool or you're a complete dissembler. Yeah. Uh, one or the other, neither one of is good. No, I don't think he's saying you're a fool because I, I, I think he, his, you know, it's sort of like, yeah, I'm on your show. I'm not going to call you, you a liar that you don't believe that. And, you know, Varney, again, that, that to bring me into your nonsense. It was interesting to see as everything that's going, was swirling around in this country and around the world to see an Englishman in America defending our president against, uh, you know, because, you know, he doesn't, he, li- he doesn't lie. He, he exaggerates and he spins. But I want to say it is that, yeah, he can't, he can't say, well, 
there's only two options here when you say that. Either you're a fool or you're a liar yourself. Yeah, but so he, the he MK, was, the MK, <laughs> the MK conveys that. To you. Yes, it does, <laughs> and and, and with that. respect. And I think that one of the one of the well, I don't think it's respectful. I think no, it's, it I is. Think it's, I think it's dismissive. And no, I think it's it's, it's it dismissive, dismissive right, but rightfully so. But it could it could have been a it could have turned into a screaming match right there. Oh yeah, and Walsh. One of the one of the things that I'm finding impressive about Walsh is. Uh, his ability to stay calm yep. in the face of situations like that. Yeah, it was good. And he'll, he'll get more of that, and oh, we'll, yeah. see, we'll see how he's gonna he, have he, to keep, he broadens that MK to something else. He's going to have to swim through these shark-infested waters. All right. Well, we looked across the pond last week at how they were shutting down Parliament in the UK and the similarity to what we're seeing here in the US. And they actually had a set of votes just this week where members of the Conservative Party, the ruling Conservative Party, stood up and said, enough. And one of them in particular, the, what they call the father of the, the of father the, of the house, the father of the house of, uh, of Commons, Kenneth Clark, who's been around in, in Parliament since 1970, he basically told the prime minister to his face to grow up. He's, he's now prime minister. Uh, he's now a responsible politician with huge responsibility. I urge him one last time to stop treating all this as a game and to use the time to actually get a serious resolution of these impossible problems. I'm as fascinated by English politics as you are. Mm -hmm. Um, And the father of the house is the longest, uh, the person who's been in the house for the longest amount of time. Um, And so in a comparison in our Senate, John McCain would have been someone like this. And someone, again, from the same party who's taking on the prime minister. The prime minister has now kicked the father of the house out of the house. He is no longer longer part of the conservative party. 21 members of the conservative party of the House of Commons in England have now been kicked out of the party for standing up in, in, in the way that we've been arguing that Republicans in America are going to need to stand up. Right. And it's, uh, it's and they did so in a they did so in a way that clearly sent a message. I mean, they they put talk about putting your own political career on the line mm-hmm. for the for the good of the country. Uh, in fact, we just found out that uh, the prime minister uh, Boris Johnson's brother, who's a member of parliament, right. has, has resigned because he can't and he can't he can't do that split between his his loyalty to his brother. And what's good for the country. And I saw the, somebody who said that uh, he, he wants to spend less time, you know, oftentimes politicians retire. They want to spend more time with their family. And what Johnson uh, what was said about him was that he wants to spend less time with his family. Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> but what, what I was interesting about this kind of Clark thing is it reminded me of when Bob Corker, uh, you know, commented on President Trump. And, and remember that tweet he had back in sure. 2017. But this was done to the prime minister's face. And we haven't had any Republican who's stood up and done that to Donald Trump's face here in this country. Joe Walsh. Joe Walsh is doing it on an hour. I'm talking basis. about. I'm talking about members of of, of the Senate or, or House of Representatives. So. Indeed. Yeah. Um, now, also this week, Walmart announced that it's going to stop selling certain types of ammunition. It will still sell guns, but it's not going to sell all of these different kinds of ammunition. What are your thoughts about right, that? Right. So this is the ammunition that uh, that can be used in these assault weapons, and you know. It's, it's less about, you know, whether this is good policy or not, but more about what it says about the ability of a group of people, and this included Walmart employees, who said, you know, enough is enough. 
And one of the things I think we are starting to realize, whether it's climate change or whether it's guns or whether it's uh, any other issue. Democracy. Is, is that it, it seems to be working much better when you start pressuring businesses. So, for example, the climate change issue, Trump wants to roll back uh, all these Methane. emission standards, mm -hmm. right, on, on cars. Uh, but the, the car industry doesn't want to do that. So what they're doing is negotiating with California on a different set of standards that will then basically apply nationwide. So it will override the federal standards. And I think in the end, this is a lot of where we're going to see democracy having its impact. Not we're, also seeing, we're also seeing democracy change all over the world. If we're seeing what's happening in Hong Kong. We're seeing what's happening right. in England. It is a time of people standing up and speaking out and willing to risk in Hong Kong, willing to risk their lives for the ability to live in a, in, in a democracy. Um, and we're seeing people fighting in, in Great Britain. So the question becomes, when does that, how is that going to manifest itself in America? Yeah, but we're, we we're saw starting, populism we're, take over in 2016. What is 2020 going to look like? Yeah, so we're, we are starting to see this movement, this democracy movement. All right. Uh, the other thing that I wanted to, to bring up is Trump's altered Hurricane Dorian map, sending it into, uh, everybody's seen this by now, where they, they used a black Sharpie to uh, expand the cone into, uh, somebody did. <laughs> he into, did. Into Alabama. Because so if is, somebody else did it. Is there it, something if, we should care about? If Yes, it is. If somebody else had done it, they would have done it better. <laughs> yes. You know what I'm saying? If, if the president had said, listen, because clearly the president, I, I, I'm saying clearly, this is my opinion, that clearly the president is trying to not look like a fool because he believes that anytime he says that he's wrong, it's a moment of weakness and he looks like a fool. So clearly he set up something, whether he told someone to do it or whether he did it. The point is, I think he did it because he did a damn bad job of it. Well, I it think was, uh, I'll tell two things. One, Wednesday night, I would have said to you, we're spending way too much. There's more important things than this this nonsense. This is just one of so many different things that yes. he did. But by Thursday morning, I think I would have changed my mind because clearly it's upset him. And this is the same thing with Joe Wal the Joe Walsh campaign. Anything that puts him on edge uh, is kind of is kind of interesting. I, I mean, in the end, I think we, we are spending too much time on this. These little details, there are bigger fish to fry. And, and that's one of the things that, and maybe that's why he is spending more time on defending himself on this. It takes our attention away from immigration issues, the economy, the lack of an infrastructure plan, uh, you know, the, 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 the trade embargoes. Uh, but it comes back to tariffs. character. It comes back to character. Yes. And on a daily basis, we have moments where we look at the difference between General George Washington and his character, imperfect as he was. But I, I, I still think of those folks who, who are still with him and are, but are worried about the economy issues. So if you can keep it back to this character thing, which they don't give a damn about, then it helps Donald Trump. So that's why I think we're spending too much time on it. Okay. Well, we just spent 90 more seconds on it. <laughs> yes. <laughs> All right. Now for our guardian of the week, um, you have put up this week North Carolina Supreme Court having to do with the gerrymandering decision. Yes. Usually our guardian of the week has somebody something to do with an individual who puts their own uh, political future in peril in order to stand up for the republic. In this case, the North Carolina Supreme Court was just doing their job. But, uh, you know, you, you can argue about how much uh, partisanship should go into redistricting decisions, but there have been a number of cases where this has been extremely, extremely 
heinous. And North Carolina's legislative map was certainly one of them. We saw the congressional map in Maryland. The Democrats had that one. This is a Republican map where they are really not just trying to get an advantage, the one party over the other, but really trying to totally block out uh, the other party by drawing these crazy maps. Mm -hmm. And I think this is what we're going to start seeing more of in these uh, state Supreme Courts, looking at their state constitutions, what their state constitutions say a free vote means. And uh, we're going to get more of that. So good on My, my concern is, yeah. you know, Elena Kagan, in her dissenting uh, argument for the Supreme Court, basically gave a roadmap to states right. on how to set up so that gerrymandering would not have such a grand effect. The concern I have is let's say we you have uh, democratic states, states like New York, California, who then change the laws. But then you get states like Alabama or Tennessee, um, where why their their Supreme Court is somewhat uh, partisan. One might expect. So why would they make that shift? You you know what right. I'm saying? Right, right. So and it's a, it's a concern. It, it it's sort of opening up again, opening up the box, uh, but maybe only helping one side. Yeah, and I think that for those who were disappointed by the Supreme Court's decision on gerrymandering and basically sending it back to the states, I think their hope now is that enough states jump on board that this becomes a national standard uh, de facto and that, that they can at some point go back to the courts and say, well, now this is really a national standard of uh, their partisan uh, partisanship is, is just the same as uh, racial uh, gerrymandering. I mean, one could argue that gerrymandering is our biggest problem in the country uh, because it, what it does is it really does force both sides uh, to their extremes. Uh, right. Because you've got to... Yeah, we've seen, that, we've seen that over time. Yeah. Is, so, that, uh, that, is that you look at Congress, uh, you shared with me that uh, uh, a map that somebody had put together, a business insider had put together a couple of years ago. Yes. Which just showed over the time how different... Uh, how, how much more entrenched in their own partisan mm -hmm. straight party voting members of Congress had become when they used to have a lot of shared votes across yeah. the aisle. Which my friend Justin Mason, who's a fan of the show, uh, had shared. And I saw and I thought, well, that's kind of telling the whole story right there. So it's definitely something we should, we're going to get into on a, on a later episode of, of the show. Um, but for that, for, for now, that's it for this week's edition of Guardians of the Republic. Make sure to subscribe to get the latest episodes on iTunes, Overcast, or your favorite podcast app. And please make sure to give us a rating so others can find us. Check out our website at guardians-republic.com or on Twitter at guardiansotr. And if you're enjoying the show, tell your friends. Thank you for joining us. We'll be back with a new episode next week. See ya. See ya.